Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to The Plays The Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I am joined in studio by Matt Bianco, Mr. Matt Bianco, as my kids call him, and Tim McIntosh, who is on the other, other line from all the way across the country. Right? You're in, are you in the Pacific Northwest right now? I am. I am. Okay. I am in Seattle. Yeah. Well, how's it going? I'm great. Uh, Matt, how's New York? Welcome home. Thanks. Small talk over. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Matt, 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 uh, Worked his way through his dissertation, and did you finish it? Yes. So we well, did you really? The first draft. I finished the first draft. Good for you. Good for you. That's the sound of thousands of people listening, clapping for mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. 100, 188 pages in in eight days. Wow, that's man, a, good for you. That's a real accomplishment. But we're not going to yeah, talk about it that now because you don't like small talk, so we're not going to give you any praise either. <laughs> um, we are here to answer. <laughs> we are here to answer questions about King Lear. Uh, we posted on the Facebook thread and requested questions by email, and we have several of them. And we're going to ask, dare I say, many of them. All the questions, right? Even the ones Tim doesn't like? Uh-huh. <laughs> I have no... Uh-huh. I, don't, I have an equal opportunity show here. I mm-hmm. will... We'll try to get to as many as we can. If, you have, if you've been a long-time Close Reads listener, you know how this works. If not, then what we're going to do is we're going to... Some of these we'll do rapid fire. We'll kind of go through them pretty quickly. And some of them we will linger on and we'll figure out that as we go because certain questions will draw our, out our conversation and our thoughts and other ones will be uh, easier to just ask quickly. We will get to as many as we can, although we probably cannot get to all of them in the allotted amount of time that we have. We should here. say that some of the questions can only be answered with numbers. <laughs> numbers, okay. Mm. So when the, like a question, like, like if somebody asks the question, you know, why does, why does Shakespeare put that uh, opening scene at the beginning of the play. And then that's the question where we're only allowed to answer with numbers. So Tim has to say six. 
15. Yeah. So it's like the, the old joke about a Pollock joke convention. I don't know that one. You don't know the Pollock joke convention? I don't. Well, maybe we'll have to say that sometime. Off the air, maybe? Though, no, it's, it's, a, it's a clean, it's a clean, it's a clean joke. Even though it has the word Pollock in it? <laughs> hey. <laughs> Did you know that the Kern last name before my great, great grandfather changed it to Kern or whatever, it was Pollock? Was it really? Yeah. So then the, the big, there's a big, there's always the, the family stories that he changed it either because he was running away from the law or because he was in love with a girl who wouldn't marry him with that name. <laughs> I don't think either of those are actually true, but one of them should be true. Andrew J. Paul. And those are not mutually exclusive, by the way. No, they are not whatsoever. Not. <laughs> They're actually probably most likely a combination. It's probably, well, that's, that's yeah. true. The most likely is a combination of the two. Maybe he was in love with a policeman. Oh, I like that. Who wasn't, you know, chasing, who was chasing him and anyway. So, um, this is getting strangely close to small talk. Here's a question from Kate related to the end of the play. When Edmund tells them what he has done to Cordelia, is he repenting and hoping that it will be in time to undo it, mitigating one of his wrongs before it is too late? I think it's pretty clear that it is true that he is trying to undo it Mm-hmm. because he sends them, he says, go run now. Right. But do you take what he's doing there as true re- repentance? And um, Tim, I'll let you answer this one first with whatever number you choose. Yes, most <laughs> definitely. I take it That's as repentance. That's not a number. <laughs> 18. <laughs> Some good I mean to do despite of mine own nature. Quickly sin, be brief in it. To the castle for my writ is on the, Lear, the life of Lear and on Cordelia. This is um, I don't think it's line two forty eight for those who want to look at it. I don't think there's any way that that's anything other than some form of repentance. We haven't seen Edmund show any sort of remorse about any of his dastardly deeds, have we? Until this moment. Until this moment, right? Couldn't an argument be made just for the sake of being the devil's advocate here, because that's my job? He says, "I pant for life," right? So he's saying, "I'm I'm nearing death." The end is nigh. So couldn't we say that, oh, maybe it's not true repentance. It's just him saying, well, you know, this is the end. I mean, had he not been stabbed in the gut, would he have repented still? I think he, well, is it my turn? Yeah. 42. Oh, <laughs> nice. That's a great answer. Yeah, that's a good answer. Awful I and concise. I, <laughs> I think that, well, I actually, we talked about this kind of at length last time. We did. Um, yeah. I think, you know, if you go back to those lines that I, that I re- referenced last week, um, you know, you have, you have Edmund recognizing the quality of Edgar's nature. You have Edmund realizing, or you have Edmund being moved by the story of his father's mm-hmm. reuni- reunification with Edgar. You have Edmund realizing that he was loved, even though it, he was, that love came from two women who are, you know, I don't know that's, that it's their love that I would want. I kind of wish it would, you know, maybe yeah. it was Cordelia's or something, but anyways, <laughs> yeah, that he, you know, but he, that may have Edmund was beloved. That may tell us as much as anything about Edmund, right? That's, that's true. <laughs> and then he says, I pant for life. Some good I mean to do despite of my own nature. And he doesn't say some good I need to do. Hmm. Right. Like, like, because of what's about to happen. Right. Because yeah. some, some good I, I mean to do, I will to do, I choose to do, despite of my known nature. So I, for me, it's, it's, 
I mean, that's kind of a summarized version of what we talked about last week. But for me, mm-hmm. it, back to last week, I think that I think that he he's definitely repented one hundred percent, and. Um, and, and that's the, and the part of it is because throughout the play, he has been someone who knows himself. And so yeah, here, yeah, yeah. He, he has, a, he, he had, he's the one character who seems to know himself and has acted upon what he sees as his own nature. And here he's saying, despite that, despite what I know of myself, I'm going to try to do something better than what I am inclined to do. Right. Right. And, and, and I think, but I do think that it's a legitimate question to ask, um, because of the, the tendency for, as we talked about last week, for these these moments of repentance or even the falling, you know, someone falling in love, mm-hmm. Shakespeare kind of giving us that those events very rapidly, right? Without all of the the backfill, mm-hmm. you know, making that those those events more believable. Mm-hmm. But he just expects us to 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 believe it. Um, you know, again, just kind of pointing back to that conversation from last week. So hmm. I can see why is, this is question it, would be asked because of that. Right, 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 right. This, this one strikes me as being a little bit different because death is looming. I mean, we don't get a mm. whole lot of backstory on the thief on the cross, but we tend to say, well, yeah, he turns to Christ because the gig is up. I mean, he knows it's a matter of hours now. Um. And so he does a, I read into his actions, the thief on the cross's actions, a kind of fundamental assessment of what his situation is. And I read the same thing into Edmund. He's pushed by his own pending death to really have a hard look. And he decides to, I think, offer this action as a signal of his repentance, a changing of heart. You have a very, um, you have a very kind view of deathbed repentance. I, I, what I mean is, what I mean is, like you, you, you see the the pending death as as something that causes a person to genuinely evaluate their life their lives and yeah. their choices. Right. And, and most people, well, I don't know most people, but some people, a lot of people take deathbed confessions more cynically because, or skeptically because they see the death, the pending death, not as something that causes the person to uh, more honestly evaluate their life, but as something that causes the person to realize I'm about to get caught. Right, I'm right. about to, I'm yeah, about to yeah, face yeah. the judge, and I'm I'm caught. So I'm, so it's kind of like the whole. You're not sorry. You're sorry you got caught. They take it like yeah. that, where it's more like, you're not sorry. You're sorry that it's over now, and you have to. You know, you're gonna. You're about to you're, face the judge, or you you're hedging to, your bets. Yeah, yeah. You're right. That, like that Darwin, yeah. People said Darwin just hedged, hedged his bets at the end of his life. Right, but I think your evaluation of Edgar's Edmund's death this repentance at his death is the more accurate of the two. So you're, uh, so you're normally a skeptic, but in this case you think it works. Well, I get the skepticism. I guess oh, you get it. Okay. I get it. Okay. And, but here I don't think it applies. And, and maybe partly because of, of, of what I said about the, you know, that he says, I mean to do good rather than I need to do good despite my nature. Right. Mm. I don't know. Okay. All right. Next question. You're so nice, Tim. Not being. <laughs> no one's ever said that before. Uh, let's see. 
I mean, he's a playwright. Um, I mean, I meant that. Well, never mind. Let's go on. <laughs> okay, a couple of basic. There's a couple of questions people had that seem to be about sort of like basic plot things that happened that were a little confusing. Um, what happened to the King of France? He married can, I, can I? Can I? But he disappears, right? Is isn't that the question? Yeah. Why like, does he disappear? Yes. Yes. He goes back to France, as one does. Okay, but I have a. As King I Hugh, have a theory right? about this. Okay. He needs to be on stage when France is invading, right? Like, dramatically speaking, he's got to be on stage. Like leading the, the charge. Of, or I can't remember which, the mountain. Yeah, walking. he needs to be there. He needs to be with Cordelia. But doesn't it say that, that he sent somebody? Yes. Place? So how can he? But do think. That? I'm just talking about it in terms of why do you not have the actor playing France, who we saw in Act One, Scene One, on the stage for the final charge? This seems like a gross misslip by or slip up by Shakespeare. I think there's a very simple explanation: the character, the role of France was being doubled. The character was playing another role huh. mm, and he couldn't, and he couldn't come back on stage because he was on stage. I feel actually like, I feel like this is a very sound speculation. So it's not that Shakespeare nods or at least not there. Right. It's just right. that it, it, practicality for practical purposes. He couldn't. He couldn't. Interesting. Hmm. That's the craziest like thing that. I've ever heard. <laughs> Excuse me? I'm sorry, Matt. I, you, you kind of mumbled something. I didn't quite hear. What was it? <laughs> I guess I'm going to move on. So, uh, it, we should. So, this weekend, this Friday, today, we're recording yes. on September 26th. On Friday, Friday, the Anthony Hopkins King Lear goes up on Amazon. Mm -hmm. So, What's I was thinking up? next week sometime, we should try to record a bonus episode for the Patreon people. Um, oh, where we talk about that, yeah, and just go over, like, just kind of assess some of the cho the choices they make. And one thing we should look for is what they do with the disappearance of France. Like, does France? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do they do they kind of make an make that character an amalgamation of different characters that sometimes happens in, in screenplay versions right. of it? So that's something. One of the things we should look for. I so. watched the tra I watched the trailer again the other day with my wife, and at the end of the trailer, I was like, okay, so they don't. They don't agree with all of my interpretations. That's cool. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. Well, I mean, half of the close reads group members. So we should do that. And then we should compare that with the, uh, I, I think the, um, uh, who, half was a very scientific number there, by the way. Who's Gandalf and accountable. Um, Ian McKellen. Ian McKellen. Ian McKellen. version is being broadcasted through fathom events too in theaters. So, oh, wow. You get a couple of different perspectives on those to hmm. see some of the different choices they make. Okay. Another question. So this is also from Kate. Well, the, does the Duke no, of well, she has too many questions? No, does kidding. the Duke of there at the top? Does the Duke of Albany now rule the realm? Is that what we're supposed to assume at the end? Is what her question is essentially asking. Oh no, I think it's Ed, it's Edgar. Edgar rules. I think it is too. Yeah. So he hands it off to Edgar. That's the way I read it too. Yeah, he says you yeah. twain rule in this realm, and then Kent says, "I have a journey, sir, shortly to go. I must." My master calls me. I must not say no. And then Edgar responds, the way to this said time, we must obey. It is interesting, though, that, that Albany doesn't seize the throne in that moment. Right. I he's know. He's the good guy. He's always, he's always has been. He's always, he's always seen it better than Goneril did. Like he could have pulled a um, Claudius. 
mm-hmm. and taking oh, advantage yeah. of the situation Absolutely. and right. easily. And, right. But he didn't. And that's like, I think that's the, you know, I think throughout the play, you can kind of wonder about his virtue, the degree to which he's actually virtuous or whether he's being sort of just trying to figure out who's, yeah. who's the right person to be on their side right now, who's winning. But it's, at the end here, we get kind of a, a determined, a, a sort of definite determination that this is a virtuous character. Yeah. Who has yeah. caught, you know. Notice he turns to the two characters who are the most loyal and the most willing to fight for a restoration of harmony. Hmm. Restoration of order, right? Hmm. Lear or Kent and Edgar. Hmm. The two who took, took on disguises in order to continue serving or to pursue uh, restoration. Hmm. That's exactly the kind of person you need ruling the country now. Yeah. In light of what's just, what happened at the beginning. Hmm. And, and what Hamlet, does it that, say? Would have changed things. What's that? Go ahead, Dave. Hamlet, if someone had done that, it would have changed everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, just going back to my Claudius comparison. Go ahead, Tim. Um, what does it say that, that Shakespeare, every, like, and I think I'm right in saying this in every single tragedy, there is harmony. Well, yeah, there's a death and after the death, there's harmony that has been brought about, um, or at least stability brought about by a new ruler. Like we don't end in a state of descending chaos. The, I don't know. We, I mean, like we could speculate about that for an hour, but I think every single Shakespeare play, that every single tra- tragedy in which a ruler ends, a ruler's life has ended. Uh, there is a new ruler that comes on and that restores order. Yeah, at, at least two books that I've read on Shakespeare years ago, probably six, five, six, seven years ago, um, both of which were are, were trying to argue that Shakespeare was a Christian. Um, and trying to prove it from the plays primarily, also the baptismal record or something. But anyways, um, both of them argued that he does that because he's a Christian, because of his hope in in uh, just the eternal justice, I guess. Yeah. But I don't know. Did you, do you buy that argument? Um, I remember liking it at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Side note, mm-hmm. unless you want to expand on that, Matt. Mm-mm, go ahead. There's been a long time speculation about uh, Shakespeare, Protestant or Catholic. Yeah. And it's hard to say conclusively, but it's, I, I think there's very strong evidence now that he was, at least by family lineage, Catholic. Now, whether or not he was practicing is a lot harder to determine, but his, there are pretty confident that his father was Catholic, at least a closeted Catholic during the was, you know, a, Protestant rulers. It was quite the time to be Catholic in England. Yeah. Yeah. What, right. Right. Was this Is this new evidence? I think sometime in the last 30 years, they found a record and I can't remember what the record was. It might've even been a church record of Shakespeare's father's signature on some sort of a church attendance record. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, the, I mean, that would certainly be an interesting way of look reading into some of his some of his work if you were so inclined, I suppose. All right, next question. What do you think happened to the fool? 
Well, my my immediate answer was going to be he was hanged. But then I saw the discussion on that question on the thread. And apparently there's there are people out there who believe that when he says my fool was hanged, that he's actually referring to Cordelia. So I don't know. What do you think, Tim? I Man, I don't know. I think, think that to me is a little bit of a, a little bit of a stretch. I think that the the fool hung himself in the cave. He couldn't go on. He lost he lost heart. It's a very, it's like a simple and perhaps so simple to be unsatisfying. Oh, the footnote says fool, a term of endearment. Here, Cordelia. Why? Why does the footnote necessarily refer to it? But that's different. That's not necessarily, that's, it's like lowercase f for fool rather than capital F as in the character. Mm. So I think, I think, I don't think we're meant to put the two together. What do you mean, David? Put the two together. Well, there's a character that's the fool, right? Right. And so the question is, what's happened to that character? But then later on, when Lear says that, I think that that is they're saying that line isn't meant to be about the fool. That specific line is just meant to be about Cordelia. But I think that the argument would then follow. That's the only reference that we have in the play to what happens to the fool. I remember, I think in, in act three, we talked about that. It's, he kind of just disappears. This is the only evidence I think that we have about his demise, about where he went when he disappeared. And I think like the tradition is that he hung himself. And I think the tradition follows that particular line. Okay. So textual evidence has it. That is a, a loving term to from Lear to uh, Cordelia. I can buy that, but is it all based on a capitalization? No, I don't know about that. Where, where's the last time the fool shows up in the play? Three, six. Yeah. You were ready with that one. And what's the last thing that he's doing? Um, he is talking to Lear and Edgar and Kent. He's in a scene with Lear and Edgar and Kent. And then Gloucester comes in. And then... Well, so his last line is, I'll go to bed at noon. And then Kent says to him, come, help to bear thy master. Thou must not stay behind. And then he leaves. And that's it. Never to be seen again. So but then he helps yeah. to bear them out. He helps to carry Lear to Dover. If he if he obeys Kent, he carries Lear to Dover. So he would be in Dover. And then he's hanged there, I guess, maybe. So Tim, you're saying the tradition is that he that he hangs himself? Yeah. Okay. But I think the tradition had there's scant evidence for the tradition other than Lear's line. Like I don't think there's any other mention in the play of the fool, right? Do you think Can you guys is, think of any other? Do you, do you think this is another instance of, uh-uh. per you know, a, a play that has a lot of characters having actors playing multiple roles? That's such a good question. I tend to think no, because, oh gosh, by this point, Shakespeare. So, if I recall, the actor who played the fool character 
the jester characters in Shakespeare's play um, early in his career was named Kent, ironically enough. And then they added, when he was getting older, they added another fool. So for me, I, I think, I just made everything very complicated. I think that Shakespeare wrote one full character and that character typically only played that role. Not okay. always. He may have doubled into something else, but typically he was confined to that role because that was kind of his specialty. Hmm. Well, so if, if the fool is not who's being referred to in that line, then my yeah. theory, this is my theory, the fool is, is, didn't actually hang, hang himself. My theory is that the fool, like like Edgar, who played, who was also Tom, Tom of Bedlam, and like Ken, you're saying it's Cordelia in disguise. Cassius, the fool was actually the doctor. Oh, so he was a super wise, smart guy that could save the king's life, but he was also the foolish guy who was trying to save the king's mind. What if the fool's Cordelia in disguise? What? That's another good theory. I like it. I like, <laughs> if one of those has to be true, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 uh, I'm gonna roll with that one for probably like the rest of my life. I think I'm just gonna go with that until I, <laughs> until I die. Um, all right. I uh, feel like though my my explanation that the doctor was the smart person who was trying to save his King Lear's physical life, and the fool was the the foolishly wise person who was trying to save King Lear's mental life. I felt like that didn't get the the accolades or the credit that Maddie, I know. I think you're right. Thank you for drawing our attention to that. Like the character arc is continued where the fool disappears, but the curative power of Lear's mind is continued by this new character, the doctor Maddie. Yes. Thank you. I love it. Appreciate that. I appreciate you fighting for that, for that (laughs) view. (laughs) Well, you don't think I've done that. I'm seriously, I've done that before. I've dropped stuff on the show. And I've been like, David, Angelina, I just dropped some gold and I feel like no one picked up the gold and I've like kind of had to go back to it. Better. I've nursed a little bit of a silent grudge in my heart. <laughs> Have you been into this podcast room? Cause the floor is covered with gold that has not been picked up. <laughs> yes. I've been there. It's, um, <laughs> Should we, should we move on or should we yeah, yeah, let's move on please should i spend some time praising you both for a while is that <laughs> you both are very smart intelligent people you said wonderful things on occasion and oh, go on <laughs> um go, yeah please so go on. katie barons i think is how you would say this um so now it's katie not kate this is a different person got it okay. i mean presumably mm, mm. I, although if you're, she was disguised, I'm going to assume it's not a disguise because she chose a very close name to her original name right right um Katie asks, do you think Cordelia's response of nothing in 1.1 is thematically linked to the moral descent of many of the characters? Who presumably because they stand for nothing? Is that the issue? She doesn't go, she doesn't go on. Hmm. Or, or maybe it is that, like she's not even willing to take a step in that direction of flattery, whereas everybody else is willing to go to the extreme in order to, not just with flattery, but with anything in order to get what they, what they want to satisfy their desires. Hmm. 
but probably the way you said it, Tim. I, I go ahead. I think that's reading a little bit. Okay, so I'm not saying that Katie is asserting this, um, but if her allusion to nothing is kind of a reference to the maybe the moral stance of the other characters, that's how I'm interpreting it. Katie, please correct me if I'm butchering your question. I think that would be reading a certain level of nihilism into the play that Shakespeare is often um, kind of seen as a prophet of nihilism. And Edmund would be representative of that for me. Edmund would be representative of this kind of like late 19th century, 20th century viewpoint, which is um, the world is bleak and meaningless. Any sort of moral claims that we make are our attempts to kind of like, I don't know, justify our tastes on a dark world that has no inherent meaning. Um, I think that might be... I think that might be a little bit of a stretch. I think the strongest case that you could make is that Edmund is kind of close to a nihilist, but he still seems to have some vision of nature that doesn't really align with straight up nihilism, philosophical hmm. nihilism. Hmm. So the line is, he says, speak, she says, nothing, my Lord. And he says, nothing. And she says, nothing. And he says, nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Um, I can't heave my heart into my mouth. I love your majesty according to my bond, no more, no less. The one thing that is true of her is she seems to have a sense of, you, you mentioned harmony, Matt, but for Cordelia, this is, this is tied to harmony. For Cordelia, she has a sense of, rightly things being rightly ordered so she, yeah. so she says she can't say what he wants him to say because it would be disharmonious it would be it would be a disorder of affections rightly ordered and so i think that um ironically her response to say nothing is perhaps more representative of the inverse of the other characters sentiments the, the moral descent it's almost like her her saying nothing to him is representative that she's the opposite of their of their moral descent that she in some ways if i'm playing with katie's mm -hmm. metaphor there she's on the she's maintaining some moral high ground as opposed to moral descent um because she is seeking to maintain things that are rightly ordered um she's made, trying to ma maintain the harmony um so and so, I, I mean, there's some. There, I think perhaps it's more of an ironic line in that way than it is meant to be representative of or or foreshadowing the moral descent of other characters. Yeah. I. Well, okay. So, I, I, I like. I think both of you guys are. There's something there, right? Like, I, mean, I agree with you, Tim. That that this is probably not some sort of nihilism in the on the you know in the one sense. Yeah. Um, and then also. Uh, what you said, David, about that, yeah, hers being the opposite of that descent. Um, I, I, I was looking to see if there's any sort of corresponding line 
in the, mm. at the end of the play when she returns? Is there something where she says nothing or where she says something or, you know, something like that in there? Yeah, and some resolution to that. Yeah. And there, there isn't really that, not, I mean, not just on a quick scan and not one that I remember. Um, but as you were talking about her, her need for decency and order, I remind, I was reminded of this line where the doctor is telling her to go in to the king and she says is he arrayed like oh is he dressed dressed. properly right i don't want to go in and see my father inappropriate in an inappropriate state right undressed and then the the um and then the doctor responds or the gentleman responds i madam we put fresh garments on him so even like even there even even there where she's she's desperate to see her father and to talk to him and to be restored with him. There's still this propriety that, yeah, that intervenes, um, which, which is, which is very, very uh, emblematic of her character. Um, I mean, her personal character, not, not play character. Yeah. Um, the, the only thing that gets close to the word, nothing that I, that I saw on a quick scan was when Lear says to her, you have some cause they have not. And she says, no cause, no cause. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's as close as you get to to nothing that I saw. What's her last line? Her last line. Five, three, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Shall we not see these daughters and these sisters? And Lear says, no, no. I think that's it. Is that it? Um. Next question. Does Lear end his life in madness or does he have more of a touchstone in reality as Cordelia dies? This is from Christy. She says she's seen productions where it seems as if he's regained his mind at the end so that he fully feels the loss of his kingdom and his daughter and, of course, the other way around as well. I've, someone was saying that they heard, I, think, I can't remember which one of you this was, that possibly Lear actually dies of... Broken heart. We both said it. Yeah. Or dies of joy. I think he I dies of joy that he dies of happiness. I saw someone writing about that. I don't think that was either of you in that case. Um, I, I, I don't know how you would, that's, I don't think that you could do that. I don't think that you can make that justify that reading. Well, do so do you think that he dies of, does he have his, is he back in reality or is he, does he, where's his mental state when he, when he dies? I just read a poem by Richard Wilbur this morning in which he says that King Lear is acting the whole time. He's acting the whole time. Yeah, he's never mad. Hmm. Now it's poetry, so, so it's I'm a, not sure it's I understand a meta it properly, play. but <laughs> Yeah. So he would say it sounds like he to me, in my interpretation of the poem is that he would say that um that Lear dies sane. Yeah. But that's because he was never mad. Yeah. I think he dies sane. I also think he was going legitimately mad. I don't think he was acting. And the reason I think that he was sane at the end is just to compare the broken speech at the top of act five, when he's with, um, Gosh, who does he meet back up with? He's with 
Gloucester. Um, and he, you know, he's come away from the Heath. He's at Dover. Uh, his speech, even there, he just jumps from one subject to the next subject. He's talking about butterflies and flowers and coining and all these different things. And I think by the time he gets back with Cordelia, his speech is very sensible. It's not broken anymore. And that would be my strongest argument, I think, that I could muster for his sanity having returned. If, if we go back to the conversation from two weeks ago on Act 4, then um, he's sane here because he speaks in poetic diction rather than mm. yeah, I was mm. for that. rather than prose, prose yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't. I think that I think that Tim is too kind to deathbed returns to sanity. That, <laughs> that people who appear to be sane on their deathbed, I, I don't know. It's just not believable to me. So. <laughs> That's what they call a callback. <laughs> so are we in agreement then? That it seems like we think that when he dies, at least Lear is sane. Well, I feel like the the fact that it's in poetic form rather than prosaic prose, the form of prose, is irrefutable proof that he was saying. So, <laughs> um, call Richard Wilbur. Richard Wilbur is not alive anymore, but he's a respectable voice. If he's making that case. That's something to be contended with. I'll I'll see if I'll see if I can convince the uh, guy that runs the Daily Poem to to read that. There you one go. On there you go. Hey, okay. So here's a post on on this. In Harold Goddard's The Meaning of Shakespeare, Tara Hyatt shared this. Um, he states that he, as well as Bradley, believes that Lear dies of joy, not grief, thinking that Cordelia lives. Goddard believes the scene was Shakespeare's version of The Last Judgment, and King Lear saw that Cordelia lives after her death. What do you think? Have you see, ever seen it portrayed this way on stage? Okay, so so that's interesting because as I was rereading those last lines when we were talking about it, I thought it was kind of weird that he said, do you see this? Look on her, look, her lips, look there, look there. And remember, he had said earlier that he was going to hold a feather. He held a feather up or something, right? To see if she had yeah, a Yeah, this feather stirs, she lives. If it may be so, it is a chance with which she does redeem all sorrows that ever I have felt. So it could be here that he's saying, look on her, look, her lips, the feather's moving. And then he's so happy that he dies. Okay. And then, so then here she's saying that Goddard believes it could have been Shakespeare's version of the last judgment. So Lear is seeing her beyond the grave as he's dying. Oh, I guess, I guess is what he's saying. so he's willing to die because he couldn't go into eternal life with her. Perhaps. Huh? Man, I, I that, that was a stretch for that's me. That's very hopeful. And I would love, I mean, for me, the, the most compelling thing about that argument is that it is not this bitterly bleak end, which I think is the way that I have read it. And is a little bit out of keeping with a lot of Shakespeare's other tragedies. There's some glimmer of hope at the end, you know, um, uh, not Banquo, Macduff comes back on the throne after Macbeth is killed and Macduff is, you know, he's a great guy. We're happy. There's a sliver. This just seems so unhappy. But man, that Goddard's reading to me is, that's a really, I don't see it. You I can't. can see Lear 
hoping that she's coming back to life, like refusing mm-hmm. to accept her death. But right before that, man, howl, howl, howl. Oh, oh you men of stones, had I your tongues and eyes, I'd use them so that, that heaven's vault should crack. She's gone forever. I know when one is dead and when one lives, she's dead as earth. Lend me a looking glass. If that her breath, she will mist or stain the stone. Why then she lives. Um, and he's the stage directions, I believe have her in his arms. So I think that the, him using the feather is just this sort of like hopeful denial of her death, but he knows that she's dying. So in, so two, two things in the, in the stage directions in our, in my edition, it never actually says Cordelia dies. Like okay. it says, it says Cordelia enter Lear with Cordelia in his arms. And then that's it. And then it just says he dies. Um, it never tells us anything about Cordelia, but the other pro- the problem for to, me, if it happens, it happens off stage. Right, 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 right. Right. The problem for me with Cordelia being alive is that why does Albany give the crown to Edgar uh-huh. instead of to France and uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's a great point, Matt. I didn't think about that. That's a great point. Take oh, that, wait, Goddard. Wait. <laughs> Actually, did Goddard but say it, she was alive or he just said that? He, well, he Goddard said the thing alive. about uh, die of joy, not of grief. I don't get the last judgment connection. But he's seeing he's, his, his daughter kind of, he's imagining her or seeing her alive in the heavens. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess so. I don't have the Goddard thing right in front of me. This is based on a comment. Um, perhaps he, someone else comments, perhaps he had a piece about joining her in death. That's from Heather. Or maybe that is me wanting that hope, she says. Yeah, I can definitely identify with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he does, you know, he, he, he says she's dead, that he's sure of it. And then the next thing he says is she lives. Yeah. So the fact, I mean, it, it seems in some ways like Shakespeare is leaving it um, interpretable as far as how you perform it and stage it. <laughs> interpretable in that you could interpret it that she's still alive well you'd have to do something with why he thinks she's alive you'd have to stage it in a way that for some reason he thinks that after having just said he was certain that she wasn't otherwise he's just going to seem more insane at the end so if he's insane Mm -hmm. at the end then if she's dead and you're saying she's definitely dead and how you stage it but Lear is saying he thinks she could be alive then you then he then he has to be insane, or he or at least you run the risk of him seeming insane. But if you believe he is fully sane at the end, then you have to believe you you have to stage it in such a way that when he says something there, it can make real sense. Yeah, I, I take Lucy it as lying again. She's genuinely dead. Lear knows she's dead. Lear is sane enough. He's sane, but he cannot tolerate this and so he's grasping he's taking just like a desperate hope that he sees this feather moving 
but in his heart of hearts, he knows that she's dead and he just can't admit it. That's how I take it. And thus he's both, <laughs> and thus he's both sane and she's dead. So maybe I'm just kind of like forcing my, my view on it. I'm kind of predisposing his sanity. So but I don't know. That's how I read it. So in the, in the footnotes here, it says that the, when Kent asks, is this the promised end after he says she's dead as earth, lend me a looking glass. If that her, if that her breath will mist or stain the stone, why then she lives. And then Kent says, is this the promised end? It says here that that's a reference to the judgment day in the, in the, footnote. Oh, huh. so then, so then Edgar and Albany have make a comment. And then Lear says this feather stirs, she lives. So there's no footnote here, but it, it could be there that there is, maybe that's what he meant in the, in the, the passage you quoted there, David, but, but it could be that the Goddard one. Yeah. And again, I just have the reference here from Tara. I don't have, or Tara, I don't have the love, the quote itself. Right. So, so it could be if, if here it's saying that he's having this vision of the judgment and she lives, she's there living, then, then it, it doesn't necessarily indicate that he's crazy. Like he's going from thinking she's dead physically to alive physically to dead physically to alive, you know, back and forth. Um, it's just, he's just, he's just either, either having a vision or just knows that because of, because of the kind of person Cordelia was that she is, that she's going to heaven, that she's going to heaven. Although uh, maybe again, the reference to the judgment day, like the, like this whole ending here becomes too Christian in a play that has yeah heretofore been all about Apollo and Hera. Yeah, and I agree. But I the reconciliation—I mean, if it's the if well, I mean, you can make a case though that it's that Christianity is the fulfillment of those things, or the fulfills the it's the reconciliation of the conflict that you find in the Apollos type of thing yeah but a christianity enters on he becomes a christian at this point no okay i see what you're saying yeah well okay so the thing is although it does when he says god spies in this edition mm-hmm. it's a capital g and it's not plural so i don't know this feather stirs she lives if it be so it is a chance which does redeem all sorrows I mean that he's so he so he's hopeful there. Then Kent says, "Oh my good master," and then Killer says, "Prithee away," and then he says, "Tis noble Kent, your friend." This is your friend talking to you here, and then he says, "Lear says a plague upon you, murderers, traitors all. I might have saved her now; she's gone forever." Cordelia, Cordelia, stay a little. What is it thou sayest? Her voice was ever soft. So it sounds like he thinks she's saying something there. So he goes from saying she's dead. Then it sounds like she's breathing while then she lives. Then he's, then the this feather stirs, she lives. He gets all hopeful. Then he's like, she's gone. And then the next line, is she saying something? So Lear himself is either going through these stages of grief as Tim suggests, or there's something else going on here. Mm-hmm. I, and the other, so one of the other options would be that um, Cordelia is alive. Man, I don't know how you could, I just, <laughs> I don't know how you could get there. 
I, I think I like, I like your thought that he's just being hopeful. Yeah. He wishes. It seems like the only other option is um, this one that we're kind of speculating that Goddard has put forth some sort of hopefulness about that he's imagining her in the afterlife. And I love that because it's hopeful. I don't think that that's justifiable by the text. I mean, if Kent is making an allusion to the judgment day, it's like the hellfire and brimstone judgment day. It's not the day of glory. This is like the day of hellfire. I do like that you're taking on one of the foremost Shakespearean scholars in the world. So I appreciate absolutely, that. but absolutely, if he's but wrong, Kent he's wrong. If he's right, he's right. Ken could mean that. Like, is this the judgment day? Everybody around us is dying, but then Lear interprets it as the judgment, the judgment, the throne, the judgment throne, right? Like, like that's, Kent, I presume that's Goddard's reading. Right, 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 right. The, the, the whole thing is you got a bunch of people who are like, oh, I love Cornelia. I don't want her to die. <laughs> and so they're inventing these bizarre theories to keep her alive. But the fact of the matter is, is that if if she were alive, then Albany would have would have acknowledged her, France. her kingness, her queen and her royalty, her throneness. But why would he have not given it to France in the first place? Because he's France was still married to her. Ah, oh, she's dead. He can't Why does her <laughs> mean he can't give it to the one that? And also, I she, think she chose not to take anything. That's not how. I, uh, that's not I how think Matt's point holds. Him. I think Matt's point holds. He would at least say, um, as the representative ruler of France, Cordelia now gets the throne. I think that would be, and it would be so neat literarily that I think that would be an obvious move if she's still alive. Tim, let it let it go. I think David needs this. He's <laughs> very sad it. right now. I don't care about it. <laughs> but I love Cordelia. <laughs> no, I. Um, if you don't name your I'm, daughter Cordelia, I'm you're dead to me. <laughs> you're Cordelia I, to me. Okay. <laughs> okay uh, let's see here. Or Mr. Mapianco, whichever. Phyllis Those asks, are my two recommendations. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, beautiful my kids man. wouldn't mind that. Either. Is there a movie version that is good and would be okay to watch with children? Tim, do you know this? No, there's not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's. Um, I mean, I haven't seen obviously like the, a staged version that's been filmed. Man, even the, okay. So I went with my godchildren to see a staged version of it, and it was the. Um, so my youngest goddaughter, seven. And I was nervous about her watching the Gloucester's eyes getting plucked out. I wasn't excited about that. But I think she was lost enough that (laughs) (laughs) she just didn't know exactly what was happening. She knew it was terrible, but she didn't, she wasn't, I don't think she was terrified by it. You know, why does he have grapes in his face, Tim? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right, right. I think I, hopefully she thought something like that. Okay. Um, Heather asks, again, this isn't, this isn't a question. This is a statement. She says, I'd love to hear thoughts about those deaths um, and DIing <laughs> Shakespeare chose to put on stage versus those which were off. Um, she says she remembers the first time she read this, she thought the messenger lied about Cornwall's death as part of some sinister plan and was surprised to find out that he had actually died. She kept waiting for him to jump out of the shadows huh. for the rest of the play. Hmm. Huh. So traditionally... So the question is, 
not a question. She just wants us to hear to hear us think out loud about which deaths were on stage versus which were off. Would you what? I mean, which ones would you? I mean, in the play, maybe they're not on the page, but that doesn't mean they have to be off stage, right, Tim? Right, right. Aren't the deaths that happen on stage in here, anyways? Aren't the deaths that happen on stage typically the ones that are just kind of sword fight? Less gory, right? They just dude gets stabbed one time cleanly, or dies of a broken heart or joy. Um, but people who like get hanged or gored or trampled or those those kinds of deaths happen off stage. I, I don't know if it's I, I might I might be making it too simplistic, right? Like like anything that would offend the audience happens off stage, or anything that would be difficult to stage happens off stage, and everything else happens on stage. But maybe there's more something more yeah, so now, physical to it. Now all. people could stage difficult things on stage more easily on screen, so right. to speak. Which Which means, I don't know. I don't know. Meaningful in that. Go ahead. Tim. You don't I, I, the guys who did the sword fights and I mean the actors that that performed these plays that were in Shakespeare's troupe. These were absolutely top rate swordsmen. I mean, like, like years and years and years of training. So I think the complexity of a death scene, let's say, for example, um, you know, the last scene in Hamlet when everybody dies, I think that was exceptionally difficult to stage. And I, my hunch is that because of their training, they just pulled it off. So I don't know that there's really a pattern about why someone would die on stage and somebody else would die off stage. Not connected to the staging of it, you mean? Correct. Yeah, right. Now, I don't know. Do you guys have a theory about why um, thematically or literarily someone might die off stage, others might die on stage? Well, could be, speaking of the staging part, if you have characters playing two different people, that would be a challenge. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I think that's actually a very good question that I wish I'd had in mind as I was reading it. Like I kind of want to go back now and not just with this play, but with all of the plays and just mm. start paying attention to who dies off scene off stage, who dies on stage and look to see if there's some sort of pattern. I, it's very interesting to me now. Yeah. So who die, who does die off stage? Off Cordelia dies off stage. If yeah. He, if he come, if he carries her in already dead, then yeah, yeah. she dies off stage. The fool. All the sisters. The one thing we didn't talk about, by the way, is that Cordelia could be dying throughout that scene. She could. That's true. So he's trying to, he's hoping she'll come back and then she's fading. And then so in the end, she dies. Um, But yeah, so the sisters off stage. Cornwall. So there's not, it's it's not a good guy versus bad guy thing. No. Um, Good girl versus bad girl. And it's not, it's not important and unimportant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sorry, we don't have an answer for you. Yeah, right. Um, is there any significance to the fact that this is from Sarah? Any significance to the fact that each of the lords in the play are named for the places they rule over, Albany, Cornwall, Gloucester, Kent, but Lear is known by his name? Is it just to show that he is the ruler overall, or is Shakespeare doing something more meaningful here? Tim, what do you think about that? I, I think that if the play were located in France and all of the action was taking place in France and Lear was a secondary character, they would refer to him by his country. So like, or his province, like if it was, he was the his province, of, right. If he was the Duke of, of Normandy or something. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think there's, I don't think there's much significance to that. 
I don't attribute much significance to it. Do you guys attribute significance? I mean, it's the same thing in Henry the Fifth because you know the, all his like even his cousins, like his cousin Westmoreland, right? Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, that's my take too. I I I would understand exactly the way you said if there if there is a meaning beyond that, it might have something to do with his renouncing the throne. But I don't I don't know that I can make that connection. Right, I, I could only surmise it. All right, last question. Why does Shakespeare use names that are so easy to confuse, such as Edgar and Edmund and Hermia and Helena? I know there are others. <laughs> this is from Nicole. I think it's a fair question. It's yeah, it is. And do you have thoughts on this? Edgar Edmund makes a little bit of sense to me. It is complicated, but I think it shows a, a kinship. You know, just because ED starts both their names. I don't know. Kent and Caius. <laughs> Kent and Caius? K. Yeah. K sound, the K sound. Right, that's his name when he's in disguise as Caius. Oh, I forgot about that. That's a great point. And then Gonorill and Gon... No, I don't know. <laughs> Ray Gen. <laughs> oh, it's all, they're almost kind of flipped, right? Gonorill, Ray Gun. I don't know. It's whatever. Gone I don't know that's in flips, but they have the same. They also they both have letters. Um, so Tim, you don't think there's anything like you, you don't think he's doing anything, anything universal uh, when he does that? that this no, same. I don't think it's like a symbolic tag or anything like that. I think the kinship thing certainly shows up, um, and especially with Edgar and Edmund, you know, thematically there in opposition to one another in a way that even go, so even going beyond the kinship thing, it ties them together, but then they diverge, right? So they're, they're mm. tied together by the Ed part and then they diverge in the Mund and the Ger part. And I mean, that's a bit of a read into it, but I think it's, I think it's, you know, I think it's true. I had a hard yeah. time keeping them. I, I kept always wanting to call the bad brother Edgar and the good brother. Edmund. Me too. Totally. Edmund seems like a name for a good guy. Yeah. Edgar seems like right? a name for a bad guy. And it must be because there's other stories where that's the case. I just thought must it was be. what you said, the Gur. I just it was subconscious, so I didn't Gurr. catch it. But the Gur, yeah, <laughs> he has to be the bad guy because he Gur. Wait, but isn't Edmund in the line the witch in the wardrobe? Isn't he the the brother that kind of loses his way and eats Turkish delight? Isn't that Edmund? It's temporary. It? Yeah. Oh, yeah. what you don't believe his <laughs> repentance either, Tim? <laughs> It's a total deathbed repentance. You're, I should be. Uh, uh. Um, but I mean, well, never mind. Doesn't that's like a, a rabbit that we don't want to chase? Uh, do we not? You sure? No, I don't think so. I don't want to. I don't want yeah, to. The whole audience now. Just, I just say it, and then we won't chase it. Well, no. I mean, I just think I have. I don't have positive. I agree with you guys. I think I tend to think of Edmund as a good character name and Edgar as a bad character name. I have no idea where I got that, but Edmund in the line, the witch in the wardrobe of the three siblings is the least. He's not the one that we identify as a positive character at the beginning of the story, at least until like two thirds of the way, three quarters of the way through the story. But we probably forget that because when once you start reading the later books, right? He yeah, yeah, really good guy. Edgar uh -huh. is the bad guy in the Aristocats. Oh, that's where it comes from. Just kidding. Also, J. Edgar. Hoover. I just realized that. I just realized that he's the bad. Like he's Hoover. the bad butler who takes all the cats 
and tries to sell them huh. for their coats or whatever. Yeah. Oh, I have little kids. There it is. Yeah, so. there you go. Yeah, that's obviously what Shakespeare was thinking about. Yeah, obviously <laughs> being prophetic. Um, yet again, <clears throat> final thoughts on King Lear from from either of you, Matt. I'll let you go first. It is. It it it. Um, it's definitely. It's definitely remains one of my Mount Rushmore plays after yeah. this reading, especially. I mean, it's probably more solidified even as a Mount Rushmore play for me. Um, is there something, Matt, that you can point to that said, this is something that you saw that really confirmed its place on Mount Rushmore for me? Um, I, I don't know. I think it's it's still what I said initially, which is that I like the kinds of questions it raises for me, you know, questions about the relationship between fathers and their children, um, questions about, you know, human nature and, um, and questions about, you know, interpersonal relationships and just the, the things that we'll do that we do to connive and, um, and get the honor or the, or the reward that we think we're due. Um, and then repentance and forgiveness and restoration, the harmony stuff, you know, all of that stuff. I, but I think all of those things are more, are more heightened in my awareness now. Yeah. Now, right? Yeah. Cause there's like, there are things that I had confused before, right? Like I thought, you know, before I thought it was Lear that went blind, but it was, it was um, Gloucester, you know, like there's some of those things that have been corrected from previous readings. Yeah. The, the previous reading. Um but also just the conversation, like the the questions that you know the, these these folks asked just here today, um, you know, kind of some of the some of the things that that you know that you were able to bring to light for me. You guys were able to bring to light for me, and in, in you know, David, the the stuff on the the poet poet poetics and the prose, you know, that was kind of um, that was great, really enlightening, and just you know, but it it it's stuff that that now like on future readings you know i want to go back and, and this play and other plays you know go back and and note those kinds of things um and then you know tim your your um you know pushing me to uh to think about that relationship between or what lear does in the beginning and my my tendency or willingness to kind of excuse him and, and make it like he was the good guy the whole time. But, but then, you know, pushing me to, to read that closely and think through that a little bit more and then, but then, but still being able to kind of fight for him and sympathize with him a little bit, you know, and, and yet be able to acknowledge the, yeah. The fault there. So I appreciated your sympathy for him. It, it, <laughs> because, maybe because I'd seen the play so many times it was easy for me to peg him as, I mean, there are things that I loved about him. And I loved that before the play begins, he's obviously a character that has earned respect and love among other people, Kent, the fool, Cordelia. Um, but it's easy because you see the destruction that he wreaks on the stage to, <laughs> to forget that, to forget that, you know, yeah, there yeah. are wonderful things about him and it's, it's easy to lose sympathy for him. So I appreciate that you helped me gain that sympathy back. Who is your favorite character, each of you, after this reading? And I don't necessarily mean it, you have to 
like or sympathize with them all the time, but just in terms of how it's written and portrayed and um, the depth of it and all that kind of stuff, the character that most interests you. Yeah. Uh, it's not a, who do we most wish we were like. Right, not that. Like, which, yeah. which character do you think is most interesting? Tim had to clarify that because he's about to say Edmund. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking... I love Kent. I just love, I wish I was yeah. more like Kent. I was going to say Kent is definitely one for me. Yeah. Kent's like um, um, Horatio. Yes, right. Absolutely stalwart. Yeah. Except that he, you know, sort of. Although when you said that, I first thought of Horatio Hornblower. I <laughs> think to, to Shakespeare. David, I always think of that question in terms of what character would I want to play. So that unfortunately mm. excludes some of the female well, the female characters. I, I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe what I've got Harry Forms and I'm six too. Would have had, <laughs> would have had a man playing them back in the day. Yeah, they would have, but he would have been like under age fifteen. <laughs> you said you wouldn't have had a Harry Forms, okay? Uh, yeah, and, and not a sweaty. <laughs> not as sweaty. Sparkly, if you know. can imagine that, not as sweaty. <laughs> I, I think I would most like to try either. Edmund or the fool. Mm. Matt, who's your favorite character? character? I, I've, I have Tim's thing where I tend to think of that question in light of who I would want to be like, I guess. The first time I read it, it was Cordelia, I think for probably obvious reasons. But this time, this time, um, uh, Lear is just, an, an, I don't know, he's a very interesting character to me. So, um, he's a character you'd want to think more about. Yeah. I, I kind of always want to think about Lear now. I mean, with respect to the play. So the, uh, it's probably Lear. Isn't that uh, funny? I just took Lear off the table. I just didn't did. even consider him as a, yeah, I did. No, if I could do it over again, Lear, I want to play Lear when I'm 72 years old and I'm like, really having a hard time memorizing the lines. I really <laughs> want to play Lear. Oh my gosh. I'm telling you, it's like a heart desire. I really want it to happen. Hmm. I will play Lear when I look like Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> and I'll play Lear when I look like Jake Gyllenhaal. So that will never happen. Um, all right, guys. Thank you for joining me for this conversation. Tim, you will next be on... The Close Reads power and the glory. show discussing the power and the glory. So for next week, we are going to discuss on the power and the glory over in the Close Reads flagship show. We're going to discuss chap- part one, chapters one and two. Uh, if you're going to be tuning into our The Plays the Thing discussion, um, we are going to be starting Much to Do About Nothing next week. And you're going to be hearing from Angelina Stanford and Andrew Kern for that discussion. They'll be joining me. Um, so thanks to everyone who's been participating in, in all this, uh, all these great podcasts, all this great conversation. Don't forget about the Daily Poem as well. Matt contributed to the Daily Poem this week. He read a Wordsworth poem. And mm-hmm. today's poem, I believe, was um, Robert Frost after apple picking, uh, at least the day that we're recording this. So uh, you can find that wherever you're getting your podcast. It's three to five, well, three to eight minutes every day. A couple, a couple readings of a poem, very brief comments, and you're on your way. Um, so if you're, if you have not tuned into that, you can find that wherever you get podcasts. Uh, thanks to everyone who's been subscribing, rating and reviewing all of these shows. We really appreciate that. It helps us uh, grow the audience and thus be able to do more shows. Um, I guess that's it. No, there are two more announcements, David. Come on. Do I have to do everything? Go on. Yeah, probably. (laughs) 
Um, I will be back for those of you who are interested. <laughs> the one of you that's interested. <laughs> I will be back in January for Julius Caesar. True, true. And then I, I will be making my first appearance on the flagship show. Well, besides the, you know, when I guess one just got dragged oh, into it. Um, uh, in February, right? For yeah, February, March, yeah. Rector, for Rector Justin. Of Justin, yeah. Class. And then the other announcement was that if you are interested in one more conversation on King Lear, then you need to go subscribe to Patreon. Patreon. Yeah, true. At the level that gives you access to the extra recordings. Yeah, because we're going to yeah. so we'll discuss the movie version. So um, we'll post that sometime in the next couple of weeks. We'll get a chance to watch that, that on Amazon and then we'll find time to discuss that and post that over on the Patreon page. So that's yep. patreon.com slash close reads. And I think even the lowest level will give you access to that. I think $2 a month is what that is. But if you want to uh, give at a higher level, we've got close reads mugs, t-shirts, bookmarks, posters, all that kind of stuff. So thank you for adding that, Matt. What did somebody? What did Sean Johnson say about me the other day that I was uh, that I'm always I'm always selling stuff or I'm always <laughs> <laughs> always be closing? I don't know, I don't know that. <laughs> yeah, always, always be closing. Always closing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's my job. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, for Matt Bianco and for Tim McIntosh and for all of us here at the Post Reads Podcast Network and the Sochi Institute, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening to the Place the Thing. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Act One of Much Ado About Nothing. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.